Greetings, Langophiles, Lango enthusiasts. Welcome to episode four of Langopod. I'm Lisa. I'm Peter. And I'm Tyler. And we're the mighty Morphine, Morphine Word Arrangers. So uh, the last podcast, we discussed syllables. And now we're moving on um, a little bit in complexity here. We're going on to this thing called a morpheme under the question, what else are words made of? So and let me just in inject here. We're not talking about the chemical substance morphine. <laughs> with I -E. The word is morpheme, M-O-R-P-H-E-M-E. -E. We'll talk all about it today. And we do have a punny shirt around that <laughs> distinction. That's right. It says morpheme <clears throat> addicts, scandalous. And most linguists probably fit into this category because whether you're really interested in sounds or grammar, you're dealing with this fundamental uh, unit of meaning. So uh, we got to ask, what even is a morpheme? And I just said, it's the most fundamental unit with meaning in a language. So uh, one way to think about it is that a morph is like a form, similar to how biologists study morphology when they're studying the forms of particular organisms. Linguists study morphology when we're studying the forms of languages. And the smallest unit of meaning of the forms is called a morpheme, ending with an M, as Tyler pointed out. <laughs> ending with an M sound, not, not the letter M. So Peter, what's the difference between a morpheme and a syllable? Aren't they just the same thing? Um, so a syllable is kind of a measure of phonological units. And it turns out a lot of times one syllable does equal one morpheme, but not always. Mm -hmm. right? So a morpheme can, can be a single consonant, for example, added to a word. Um, perhaps in some languages, a morpheme is multiple syllables. True. So There's many in English, aren't there? Right. Succotash. <laughs> so we've got some kind of simple examples to start with in English. And our first example is the word kind, because we are nice people here at Lango. So we like this word kind. And kind has one morpheme. If you were to add something to this word, such as the prefix un, then you would get unkind, and that is two morphemes. Right? You can also add something to the end of this word, like an ly, to, to make an adverb. You will get kindly which is two morphemes, right? So maybe unkindly, if that was a word or is a word for you, then that's three morphemes. It occurs to me that kindly is really two words. There's the adverb kindly, but there's also the adjective kindly, a kindly old gentleman. Hmm. He's not old in a kind way. He's kindly, like friendly. We associate the L-Y with adverbial meaning, but there's also an adjective deriving suffix. Kind itself also has a more that like you can have kinds of things and be a kind or nice wow. person. Adjective. So this is yes. uh, pervasive in English, multiple meanings. I think a lot of languages do it. Um, so uh, we, we did a little bit of morpheme counting, but uh, we have here on the screen an open black box because uh, how can you know how many morphemes something has? There's different ways to argue this particular kind of counting. One would be, say, historical evidence. 
So maybe, for example, in English, we borrowed a word of Latin origin and we want to argue this has X number of morphemes because we can recognize rat Latin roots, even though maybe none of those are decomposable in English, or maybe they are, right? So this brings us to our second way of counting is, do you think they are unique units in the speaker's mind? Right? And so this becomes harder to measure, but it's probably more close to the measurement we actually want. Particularly if you're trying to learn, a, if you were trying to learn historical linguistics, then the first measurement's the most important to you. But maybe if you're trying to learn a language for the sake of speaking it, then you might want, care more about how you measure it in your own mind. What a concept. But how to do that, right? That is the ultimate black box question because we don't know. Yeah, we're opening the box, but it's for you to solve. <laughs> <laughs> right? So um, Tyler has pointed out some... Uh, kind of categories from transparent to opaque compounds. Now compounds are thought of as two words put together, but we could yeah. identify simple compounds as two morphemes, It's also two morphemes put together. Good. So we have a nice palindrome here. Yep, our first word is- Friend indeed. <laughs> <laughs> our first word is race car and uh, a palindrome is, Tyler, you want to tell us about the palindrome? Yeah, if you arrange the string of letters backwards, you'd get the same word. I guess conceivably you'd have cases where you also get a different word, but traditionally read the same running forward and also running backward. So in this case, race and car, they happen to both be one syllable, but they're meaningful syllables. But whereas in a word like succotash, those three syllables don't have any meaning on their own. Right. So race car is, uh, in addition to being a palindrome, it's also what we might think of as a transparent compound because it's really clear race and car have their own meaning and you put it together and you get a car that races. We all understand it. You can see exactly what makes up the compound. See and hear that. Yeah. The, sa the sounds don't change when you put them together in this mm -hmm. case. Race sounds like race and car sounds like car. Never the twain shall meet. And when you go on to the next level, uh, it begins a little bit less clear with one like cupboard. Now, when I say cupboard, I just skip straight to the B sound. I do not say cup board. But especially if you know about English spelling, you can guess uh, the two components of this compound pretty e easily as cup and board. And even if you've never seen it written, it's somewhat transparent. You still might get some idea. Oh, there's cup as part of cupboard. That makes sense. We put cups in there maybe a little less likely it's kind of right, opaque it's also, right it's also possible little children when they learn the word cupboard aren't connecting it to board or to cup they just learn that's it right as, a, new as a chunk that's true i suspect that's the case that mm -hmm. children just learn it as a chunk and then later you get some analysis yeah so getting a little fuzzier and we get even fuzzier uh with one of the favorite examples that tyler has taught me and this is stirrup now, stirrup is so opaque that you might uh, analyze it yourself as a compound of stir and up. Like, oh, I stir up in the saddle. In case you don't know a lot of uh, English vocabulary, stirrup is um, part of the gear you use to ride a horse, particularly the part where your foot goes in and you step up into it. So Into the saddle, not into the in, horse, please. Yes, into the <laughs> saddle, which is on top of the horse. Um, mm -hmm. We don't need any hate from equestrian Twitter. So, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, stir up appears to be stir and up, but uh, as Tyler has taught us, it actually comes from stag and rope, meaning standing rope. More like a steeg for that first component. To climb was an old English verb that's since dropped out. Will you give us a pronunciation of both parts? Stegen for the for the verb to climb, and rap was rope. Hmm. So these sounds over time touched long enough that it became stirrup, and other vowel changes and such happen in English. So it's so opaque, meaning hard to see the analysis, that you might accidentally make the wrong analysis because of the opacity. Let me so, mention another case. Yeah, go ahead. Just to say that uh, it is, it gets hard to measure how many morphemes are in it. I would say that probably today when we look at stirrup, a native speaker with no knowledge of the history of the word will, unless they mistakenly analyze it as stir and up, this is maybe one morpheme now in English, right? This is a cool uh, survey to do <laughs> later of English speakers. Another case that I know speakers missegment, I used to do it myself, is this word outrage. It looks like it's put together from out and rage, but historically it's the suffix like we have in mileage, footage, and so on. And the outre hmm. is related to the word ultra. So the spelling misles us there. It has misled <laughs> That's right. And it, it makes sense even in the new reanalyzed thing because you uh, can outperform and outdo. And so it just, oh, well, of course it means I did not know that before this very podcast. I rage better than anyone. I can outrage anyone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to do uh, a little bit of morpheme counting before we go on and learn much about morphology, uh, just to get the wheels rolling. We have a couple words here, and we're going to discuss how many morphemes we think they have. And maybe you can take guesses, too, as the listener, and think how many morphemes you think it has. We'll see how it goes. Our first word... Morpheme means meaningful part of a word. That's right. We're trying to count up the meaningful units. Our first word is ed educate. Um, and if you were looking at this from an English perspective, it might be hard to guess how many uh, morphemes are in here just from common usage. It seems at least that the eight, the A-T-E at the end, is put on many different words. So you have um, dictator and dictate. So it must be eight means something there right? Um, sp speculate. And we can see it in a lot of different words. And, you know, without any knowledge of the history of English or uh, what language this was introduced to English from, you can start guessing that that's probably its own part. Maybe you guess that the E is its own morpheme too at the beginning. Maybe you guess it from words like exit, where you think that that's two morphemes. I don't know. But it's hard to know, just from knowing English, how many morphemes are in here. My understanding is, taught to me by Hadros, is that this is three morphemes, as was just annotated on the screen a moment ago, um, coming from ex duc ate, to lead out of in Latin. That's what I have been told. Tyler, what do you think? Well, if you are we talking about Latin morphemes or English morphemes? That is the question. It's hard to assign a meaning to eight. Eight? Except unless it's the past tense of eat. If we're talking about meaningful parts, right? 
don't know that eight has a meaning. Perhaps uh, some other examples will make. Maybe some something about action, putting something into action. But yeah, it's it's slippery. Yeah, I couldn't guess the meaning of eight without the knowledge of the Latin part, but I might guess that it is added on just because it's on so many other words and seems interchangeable. But you, it's not though. It's not as though in English you can go. Um, oh, you can say educate educator, but then there's no no clear evidence that it's different morpheme. Yeah. So this is put on here exactly to show the problem with counting morphemes. Um, using only your own analysis, but still is useful if you're a language learner to think about things in morphemes. Whether you were to decide that uh, educate is one, two, or even three morphemes, uh, it may be helpful for you to analyze other words. So our second word here is happy, because we're all happy to be counting morphemes. I like these positive examples. We need more <laughs> positive linguistic examples over violent ones. I noticed a lot of linguistics examples, particularly in syntax, are violent. I know They're very violent. I know mine are in my dissertation. I needed really transitive verbs and they're just very <laughs> transitive. So, so happy uh, for me saying, I don't know about the history of these words. I might guess that this is one morpheme. I might be torn because I noticed that this E sound in happy spelled with a Y is often put afterwards to make them adjectives, right? Lucky. So did you say lucky? Lucky. Yeah, luck and lucky is a perfect example. So I might guess that hap and e are two morphemes. But then I would struggle to think of if hap can be its own word. Now you might notice uh, that hap is found in other words. Right? I think of immediately haplology. Hapless. Hapless. <laughs> That's a perfect. That's a hap. <laughs> I think Good of knowledge. haplology because I'm a linguist, but that's maybe not the best word to think of when you're starting this. Uh, Tyler, you said before maybe uh, hap haphazard. There we have it. Mm -hmm. oh. Haphazard. Happen. Hapless. Yeah, Lisa some, mentioned hapless. The coin word like hapless. There must have been at some time a meaningful morphine that was hap. Right. So because you can't be hap now. Yeah, we'll talk about those a little bit later. Gormless. Yeah, there are a few cases where the, the lost positive, the positive has been lost. So we we might argue, right, if we were a language learner, it doesn't matter uh, the ultimate answer for science, but just as a language learner, you you might argue this is one or two morphemes. If you had a big knowledge of the English lexicon, you might start to see this part in other things. It may not be obvious that this root hap is the same root in happen that might not be that obvious but if you had enough knowledge of english lexicon and even if you just thought that this is an adjective um you might guess that this is two morphemes or not this is part of the problem with this counting the next one might be easier or not it is disinterested now right from the beginning we can see this dis goes on other things um and so we would guess that, and we already know, well, there's this word interested. So right. we're going to say we there, there's a line between dis and interested. Chop it there. 
And we also know that there's this word interest. So interest and interested seem like that must be another line right there in the ED. Then when you're just down to interest, gets for an English speaker, I think, hard to know if that is one or more morphemes, right? I think historically we might found out that it is more, but as the modern speaker, you might think something like rest. Oh, is interest? Mm, but nobody really says interest. They say interest. So if you really didn't know the spelling, it'd be even harder to maybe even make that connection, whether or not that's even accurate. Uh, Tyler, what do you know about the history of this word? Well, um, if we're looking just at the root in the middle here, interest. Mm -hmm. Just at interest. It's a compound verb. Inter is the same element that we have in international and all those guys. And est is the Latin copula. It means is. Hmm. Intermit <clears throat> between. It is between. That's the root meaning of this. And est itself actually has two parts. It has a root, s, and the t is an inflectional suffix. So we can keep cutting it into smaller and smaller meaningful parts if we really want to. Is there two meaningful parts in the Latin root of inter? There are, yeah. There's an in, the positional word, and this ter is like a comparative suffix. That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. So the more you know about the history uh, of the word and where it came from, the more morphemes you might be able to recognize. We're up to six at the current analysis. And also depending about what language we're talking about. I wouldn't say that this T suffix that we have here is meaningful for English. We have our own T suffixes, but in Latin it was a, it was a movable part that had meaning. Therefore it was a morpheme. And, and this is kind of uh, the point of counting these morphemes is so as you can see that uh, it's not as though there's one perfect correct answer all the time. It depends on what your goal is and what your previous knowledge is. Uh, if your goal is just to learn English Perhaps learning the history of Latin isn't very going to be very productive for you. But if your goal is to understand the history of English, then it's absolutely necessary. Right. So and what's that? Uh, let me mention when you're learning German, the word for interest, the noun, is similar to the English, but not quite the same. It's interesse. Interesse. I put it on the screen. And there they've, they've taken the infinitive form of that verb, esse, instead of our est. So that's how you connect those two. It's not, it's not nothing to do with any sound changes in English or German. It's just borrowing a different form from Latin. This also kind of shows that learning related languages, German and English and Latin, distantly related to German and English, uh, starts to build some momentum. You know, if you have a lot of knowledge of Latin, as Tyler does, which he also has knowledge of English and German, <laughs> these things build together. Uh, so, of course, we are encouraging everybody to be a langote and learn as many languages as possible. All right, so we have two on there at the end, which uh, is before and after. Um, we see this verb to be everywhere, so seems reasonable to posit that be, as in before, is its own morpheme, and that's at least two morphemes. And the same with after, we see ER put on all sorts of things like jump and jumper and write and writer. So we would guess that maybe before and after are both two morpheme words. Um, I think they are, well, before, if you look at the form in Old English, it really had three parts. And this B, it's spelled like our verb, but it's 
really not connected to the verb to be. However, I do like the segmenting of after. We mm -hmm. do, especially if you are familiar with boats and shipping and all that. The word aft is still in existence, and this after is a comparative form. That's yeah, that's what I would do with it. I would look at fore and aft. That's what I like about it is I like the um, kind of nautical terms about it. I think it shows you something about the old culture of English. Whichever direction it came, whether it came from land turns going to nautical terms or vice versa, it shows you that boats were important and stuff. And for me, when I learn about the history of a language, I'm really interested in what things you can learn about the culture. Mm -hmm, absolutely. But yeah, for the learner or even for a child, probably learned as a chunk. Yeah. And they're pretty opaque, right? It looks like this B is the mm -hmm. B verb, but as Tyler has told us, it's unrelated. Yeah. Okay. So our next uh, topic is the distinction between free and bound morphemes. And we've already touched on this a little bit with the word happy. So a free morpheme is a morpheme that can stand entirely on its own. So for example, sad, fun, run, of, the. So sad, for example, can stand completely on its own. You can have sad or saddened or sadly, etc. But sad also can stand on its own with its own unique meaning. A bound morpheme is one which must attach to something. So earlier we talked about the ly, which sometimes, or I guess often indicates adverbs and sometimes not, but it attaches to something. Um, of course, you can use the word Lee as a name or something, but it's not the same morpheme as sad Lee. Uh, un, as in uninterested or unhappy, of course, is a bound morpheme. You don't get un on its own. The same with dis. Now, Tyler has pointed mm -hmm. out dis is a word in modern English. But we're just talking about the dis that goes on the front of disrespected, right? Uh, the same with ed, also in that, a past tense in English or sometimes uh, perfect. Uh, it, Hard to even pronounce on. <laughs> yeah, we, I was like, I'm going to call it ed or ed, but it's nobody says painted. They say painted. <laughs> it's hard to even say on its own in English. I agree. So um, if you are looking at our screen and you're watching this podcast, you probably have noticed we have hyphens attached to these bound morphemes. What is the deal with the hyphens? <laughs> well, the hyphens are indicating that these things attach. Specifically, a hyphen before one of these morphemes means it attaches to the end of something. A hyphen in front of one of these morphemes means it attaches to the beginning of something. So the hyphen is pointing in the direction of the thing it attaches to. That's right. Um, we're talking about affixes. Now, uh, the first kind we're going to talk about is a prefix. So this is something that attaches to the beginning of a stem. This is an example of this is un in unhappy, right? Something that attaches to the end is a suffix. So uh, an example of that is the ly in kindly. Prefix is probably pretty easy to remember because pre is an example of a prefix in this word. There's a morphine. Right? Mm -hmm. Now suffix frustratingly uses a prefix. 
<laughs> Good point. Yeah. Um. Uh. There are other possibilities that are at least less common in English and tend to be somewhat less common uh, cross linguistically, depending on the language family. The first one is an infix, which inserts into the stem. We do have one in English, but it's a swear word. They're often swear words. <laughs> in fact, we have a new candidate. Uh, we were joking on our Instagram live last week. Um, 2020 might be a new infix. <laughs> in 2020, <laughs> believable. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Let me mention there are traces of old infixes in especially words of Latin origin. That's how we get victim. Victor is a, is a more auspicious one. Victor is related to the word invincible. They go on screen. So the root is this vic. It's the oh, basic shape. Vic in victor. In is a prefix. Ibel is a suffix. And this n has been inserted into the root. Hmm. Awesome. It looks like the common Austronesian infix in, which we're also going to discuss in this podcast. N is a good so, segment. If you're, you're going to put anything into a root, make it an N. That's <laughs> <laughs> a reasonable infix. The other option that is a little less common but worth discussing is circumfix. And a circumfix is added to the beginning and the end. Uh, an example of a productive circumfix, uh, which is a central part of the grammar of a language, is the negation in the Paraguayan language Guarani. Um, but we're not going to put those examples up here. It's uh, polysynthetic language is too advanced for first day in morphology. <laughs> we'll get to that maybe next time. We'll talk about it. Let me take a second to give some nice German examples of uh, circumfix, though. Yes, please. Doing the part of it, we have, uh, well, German and English are closely related. Let's talk about do versus done. In German, we have tun for the infinitive. Well, that's not a good example because the vowel changes too. But fragen, to ask. The N, I'm going to add a hyphen. Oh, I tried to add a hyphen. It didn't go. Let me segment the word. Fragen. The root is frag, ending with G. The participle, so like asked in have asked, is gefragt. And both parts need to be added. Gefragt. These are a little sticky. There we go. You can't have just gefragt, and you can't have just fragt. That would be a different word. So these, this g and this t, they, they go together. They're a single piece in the grammar language. Other verbs will add en at the end. So like give, geben, the participle is gegeben. Gegeben. I'll leave it at that. So we have like so a, there's one pretty close to home. What was that? Pretty close to home, German and English are close cousins. And you pointed out one that appears to be a circumfix in English, although it isn't usually used this way until popularized by the Simpsons. And this <laughs> is embolden, right? So you have the um in front of embolden, the em at the beginning, and then the en at the end attached to bold. And Simpsons has popularized this with embiggen. Cromulent. So unlike force and enforce, 
Or what's another one with a B where we see it showing up with an M? Sometimes you can have just the prefix added and forced. And sometimes it's just the suffix like haste, hasten, fast, fasten in those guys. But with embolden, we can't say embold and we don't have a word bolden. <laughs> Mm -hmm. They come together to give emboldened and now also in big. I told you I also saw in smallin, right? Smallin? Maybe it's really popularized. That's really good. I, I love it. I'm saying that all the time now. <laughs> I'm going to embiggen my own vocabulary with in smallin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, we want to talk a little bit about um, allomorphy now. This itself has a couple morphemes in it, the word allomorphy. As a way to remember the meaning of allomorphy, it's helpful to remember that allo means different. So different morphemes, forms, right? Um, allomorphs are different forms of what are fundamentally the same morpheme. That is a one sentence definition for you. An example uh, that we'll discuss more in a second, but just briefly here, is cats, dogs, and judges. The plural suffix in English changes sound a little bit depending on what it touches. So if it follows a word... You might not even hear the difference if you're a native speaker. Right. Probably if you're a native speaker of English, you have never noticed this, as I had not before I started studying it. Although many of you maybe have noticed it. If you've gotten to this podcast, you're probably already pretty curious. But... Anyhow, after the word cat, uh, the plural suffix appears as an S. Cats. Hope you can hear like that. Voiceless. And after the word dog, it appears as a Z. Dogs. And after the word judge, it appears as a schwa and a Z together. Uz. Judges. I'll explain why they do this a little later in the podcast. But for now, it's just uh, important to note that there's three different phonetic forms, one of them even with a vowel inserted. Well, appears to be inserted. One question you might have is, are all three suffixes the same form in the mind? Are they all derived from one form or are they just memorized as three different things? Unfortunately, we can't answer this question. Another black box question. It's a, it's a huge central question in the science of language. But important for you to think about as the learner, whatever kind of way you come to will help you remember and analyze language and learn more quickly. So we want to talk about the two macro types of morphological processes, the two big boxes we can for sure put pretty much every morphological process in. And the first one is morphophonemic. This has to deal with a change in sounds. You may remember talking about phonology. Now you can recognize the morpheme phone sound in morphophonemic. So this has to deal with a change in sounds. As we saw in the English plural, the same grammatical information in uh, the plural, regardless of whether it's S, Z, or Z, but different uh, phonetic manifestation, typically depending on its environment, right? This morphophonemic processes are one sound touches another, a simple way to think about it is one sound touches another sound and so some things change, right? One morpheme touches another morpheme and the sounds that touch may cause a morphological change because of sounds. And this is gonna be manifested in sounds. Now a morphosyntactic change um, has the root in there syntactic, which has to deal with syntax. 
So this is going to be more grammatically related stuff. So it could be, for example, a change in meaning or lexical category. Our first example is he and him. So one might posit that he and him have the same meaning, third singular uh, masculine in English, and they are different based on grammar. He is uh, typically used for subjects and him is typically used for objects, right? Or, well, we'll talk more about case in a future podcast. If you want to know, we'll make the case for case. So the second one to look at is happy and unhappy. Uh, this has changed um, meanings in the exact opposite, right? Uh, so we are looking at a change, a different kind of change in grammar. Then finally, we look at quick and quickly, where we have largely the same meaning, quick, but we have changed lexical category. You might say quick is an adjective, as in, uh, I have a quick puppy, a puppy which runs very fast. And you might say, my puppy runs quickly. All right, so moving on, uh, we want to introduce a potentially useful distinction between inflectional and derivational morphology. And this has to do with the morphosyntactic processes. Um, maybe these categories are a little fuzzy, but they could help you organize knowledge when you're learning a language. So we're going to include it anyways. The first one is inflectionable. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Wrong morphine there, inflectional. <laughs> Apparently that's productive. So uh, inflectional morphology changes grammatical information uh, in meaning of a sort, changes grammatical meanings. So an example yes. would be paint. Say, say again, Tyler. I was just going to say limited types of meaning difference compared to the next type of morphology that we'll see. Right. It's yeah, really overlap. It's contained to... It's most typically uh, represented, if it is in a language, in tense and aspect conjugations on a verb and things like that. But we will represent in English with the example paint and painted. The past, in this case, the past tense of paint. I paint every day. In fact, I painted last Saturday. That's not true. It's just an example sentence. But uh, the ED is added on. The core meaning of the verb to paint is there. We just now have different information about the tense. So right. the other is going to be a transitive verb in the present tense and also a transitive verb in the past tense. Certain things like that don't really change. Me and ED. Uh, yeah, when it's being used as the past tense, not the uh, past participle is in the wall painted. So although someone painted it, <laughs> uh, anyhow, um, the next uh, distinction we're making, as opposed to inflectional, is derivational morphology. Now, derivational morphology can be used to make new words. So happy to unhappy is an example of that. It's literally the opposite meaning. So it's a change in meaning for sure. You can also use... Change. What's that? It's a very big change, yeah. <laughs> Completely different. Um, I prefer the dishappy, but just joking. You can you can apply these in fun ways if you're silly like me. Uh, so 
The next change is a change in word class, also called lexical category, just so you know that that uh, terminology. And that would be the change. Adjective, adverb, those are word classes or categories. Yes, uh, word, word classes are, in case you couldn't hear Tyler, was noun, adjective, verb, uh, adverb, that kind of thing. Um, so changing quick, like quick puppy to puppy runs quickly. Quick to quickly is a change in word class. And not just English, but English does this other thing where you change word class when nothing happens, right? So you can say, um, what do you do every Sunday? I run. But in that case, it's a verb. But then you would say, I go for a run. Similar meaning there, but now it's a noun. So run and run, or as the example is here, jump and jump, um, as in I jump every day or I did a jump. You know, something like that. Uh, What's that, Tyler? Uh, Long jump, for instance, the uh, sporting event. Olympic sporting event. It's clearly a noun because it's got an uh in front of it. Uh does not combine with verbs in English. I I did BMX when I was a teenager. And so I would think of a jump as a fine noun as it is. is. (laughs) Like I built a jump. I did a jump. I fell off a jump. Something like this. Mm Um, maybe parachute schools would use it as a noun a lot. So these are context dependent probably. But the point is, when you do run and run as a verb and a noun, or jump and jump as a verb and a noun, there's no change to the form, but there is a change in lexical category. So some people call this zero derivation because they're acknowledging there is still a change in lexical category, but the zero refers to no change in the form. So this might be if lexical category is something someone was struggling with as a learner of English, it's useful to know these sorts of distinctions, perhaps. The next uh, thing we're going to talk about is a morphological process in English that may be hard to break down into morphophonemic or morphosyntactic because it is it involves an apparent change in vowels. I am entitling this... What's that hard to break down so hard to break down in terms of just prefixes and suffixes it's neither it's also that's, not a suffix. that's right we're starting off with some we want to give the listener an idea of the breadth of this topic without also crushing them with information so we're we're easing you in we'll talk about morphology for a while not just today so this slide is entitled sing sang sung for those that are listening and not seeing or not watching um What's going on here, right? Forms like sing, sang, and sung display different vowel qualities that correlate with a change in meaning. One way someone might look at this is though there is one um, item stored in the mind, say it's sing, and that sang and sung are versions of sing. Another view would be that each word is stored in the mind as its own separate item. Regardless of uh, the reality of how this is stored in the mind, this, uh, this is, uh, it's not a productive uh, process in English, but this process does happen in English in several words, not just uh, sing, sang, sung, but uh, mm-hmm. bring, brang, brung, drink, drank, drunk, uh, etc. It seems swam swum. That's right. That's right. It, it seems to be limited to this i vowel with a nasal after it, something along this. But 
Um, Tyler has added the word song there. I thought of this too. This makes the paradigm complete here. Sing, sang, sung, song is the mm -hmm. noun then. But uh, unless you know something about the history of English you want to tell us, it doesn't work for like ring, for rang. Yeah, I, I wish it did because I'd like to have a drunk, but... <laughs> we already have the word wrong which means something else and can't go with ring rang rung uh so this even though this uh phenomena is very limited in english it only happens in a certain context it actually does happen uh quite a bit in some other languages sometimes in surprising places uh bob blust has written about this occurring rather fantastically in a few languages of Borneo due to deletions and stress shifts, the opposite direction of the historical explanation in English, my understanding is, but it does happen. It's an emergent process. It happens in some languages and you may be studying a language that has these vowel changes correlating with say changes in inflection. We've been using this word productive. I haven't yet explained what it means. A productive process in a language is one that can happen to new words, for example. So uh, when we talk about the plural est in English, well, maybe it's an s, maybe it's three things, maybe it's one. When we talk about the plural suffix in English, you can apply it to new words, as is famously done uh, in an experiment, which I forget the name of the animal they use. So we're going to use our own animal name, uh, um, a langoat. And the langoat, even though this is a new word, if I said there are two, you would say there are two langoats. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? We don't even have to do any copyright violation, nothing, because this is our own unique experiment. We just did it. Um, <laughs> but with sing, sang, sung, often these types of limited uh, phenomena, we call them not productive because they typically aren't applied to... Uh, new words in the language. This again also, by the way, is a fuzzy category because you may have heard of this uh, animal called a mongoose. Hmm. So many people call the plural of this animal mongoose. Right. I personally prefer extremely thorough pluralization and I go with mongooses. <laughs> uh, the point is, it, if English is totally regular, we should have mongooses. But since we already have this goose-geese change, a lot of people say mongoose. This sort of application of a phenomena which is considered not productive is called analogy. Again, we're just putting things into boxes a little bit. This is famously satirized in, uh, I believe, Rocky and Bullwinkle, where they talk about moose and meese. <laughs> try to analogize goose and geese to moose and meese. Exactly. The point is, to the learner, something mm -hmm. like Sing Sang Sun which is not very productive or isn't productive, depending on your analysis, is something which must be memorized by the learner. M many, many languages have corners which are not productive but must be memorized, and they're often found in high-frequency words where these things are preserved. So very useful if you're learning. What's I that mentioned time? another case of a less productive morpheme of English. So if we can, uh, the TH suffix that we have in width, wide width, Mm -hmm. That's really limited to a dozen or so cases. We have it also in broad and breadth. What else is there? Deep depth. So forming these abstract nouns, 
deep step. I'm being silly. That's but not. We're it. unlikely to to add it to new things. Although I think I have heard cool. <laughs> what? Really? <laughs> no, Seems very sarcastic. <laughs> Seems so, to vocabulary. What else is? What's a more common uh, recently arrived adjective? Hip. We're unlikely to say hips. Well, even ones that sound like it, like uh, earlier I said steep and steps, like deep and depth. We don't do steep and steps. <laughs> TH suffix, we would say, is no longer productive. Mm -hmm. It was once more widely used in English centuries ago, but it's kind of on its way out. It's just a few fossilized cases where it survives. And many languages have these corners, is my observation. A corner mm -hmm. where something seems to be better to memorize it than try to draw generalizations or you can draw a generalization and only apply it to certain words there's a million ways to analyze it uh, that's the part of the fun of syntax but as the learner part of the fun of linguistics in general i agree but that, to the chagrin of the learner right <laughs> well i think the learner and there's a the learner has an advantage over the scientist in some ways because the learner can know if they're right or wrong by whether they can speak the language or not but as a linguist maybe you'll never know how it's stored in the mind. You know, maybe that, or maybe two years from now, it'll be solved, but I, I don't know. Um, we invent the brainoscope and we can just look. I think that's a forbidden experiment. I don't think it'll be solved. <laughs> uh, I actually took a class with Chomsky and he mentioned that it was, a. he said, you know, if you go and look at Google searches for how language began in humans, you'll find tons and tons and tons of hits. But if you look for the bee waggle dance, which communicates between, not all bee species do it apparently, but some of them, he said there's a few papers and that's it. He said this is a shame. He said he doesn't know if it's ethical or not to put electrodes and such inside a bee's brain, but that you could. This is allowed in research right now and you can't do that to a human. And he doesn't understand why we're all skipping this kind of low hanging fruit. So for now, we can't do that stuff to humans and maybe we shouldn't do it to bees. Well, is it, yeah, is it ethical for animals either? Open question. Nobody's done it, perhaps for ethical reasons, although I suspect it's because it's just not a big research topic. But yes, since we don't know yet, uh, in some ways, the language learner has us at an advantage because they can just you can test whether you learned a language or not accurately by if people understand you. Hmm. So whichever way you arrive to, uh, we're just putting a lot of options out there to help make the language sticky when you think about it. And at least learners at Lango, I think, appreciate some irregularity too. Some things that aren't, don't fit quite so neat. It does make it fun. And mm -hmm. it, it's like the, you know, the shibboleth. You can tell, you can tell people's levels by how much they've mastered the irregularities. Moving on to something that might be called irregular is suppletive forms. Uh, it's important for English. English has quite a bit of this and other languages have none or very, very little. Yes, it is. That's a good point, Tyler. It's not actually super cross-linguistically common. Uh, although within the languages where it happens, there's a bunch of typological patterns. That's a podcast for a, another day, though, perhaps. But suppletion, just so you know what it is as the listener. Um, so put simply is when you kind of replace one word with a totally different part and they don't sound related. Our definition here is that it's historically unrelated forms as part of the same word. So a perfect quotes, there's, there's quotes there. Now, 
An example in English that works very well is go, and the past tense of go, went. Nobody says goad, right? In fact, that's a different verb altogether. Um, but go becomes went in the past form. It's an unrelated word. It's not as though you add a prefix or suffix to go and then you get went. It's just a totally different thing. And the consistency of this can be seen in words like undergo and underwent, right? So um, <laughs> we are, uh, there's, we can compare this to comparative morphology, not to get too meta, but <clears throat> you have non-suppletive comparisons, like mm -hmm. these are often called the morphological uh, comparatives, like fast, faster, and fastest. Now, fast is a part of all three, and you can clearly see transparently there are suffixes. Tyler has underlined them, er in faster, and est in fastest. But we have suppletive forms, too, in these comparatives, such as bad, worse, and worst. Worse and worst seem very clearly related, and it's kind of similar to um, faster and fastest, the st mm. sound at the end there, right? But bad and worse, there's no connection between those words it, it, as far as adding prefixes and suffixes or changing vowels or something. It's just a totally different word. This is something this is something that must be memorized when you're learning a language like English. Although native native speakers probably don't even think about mm -hmm. but might vex a learner is we have in B versus R versus was. That's right. Long, long ago, those were three distinct verb roots, but they've become merged into one in the history of English. And it's it, it is a, uh, I know verb to be is uh, a core part of teaching English to speakers of other languages because it, it's for us, okay, that's, the, that, that's the hard part, uh, the hardcore conjugation we do in English. That's the hard part. Um, to the learner, these forms must be memorized. Now, I think hedging a little bit, if your goal is merely to be understood, then you might be able to say things like bad, badder, and baddest. And in fact, baddest has a context topic for another True. day, though. <laughs> it does. So maybe English is flexible. Maybe most languages are. And you can, you can negotiate meaning. But if you, say, want to get a degree in English, like say you want to study mathematics or something, and you want to study in English, you probably must memorize these forms to write academic English. A little bit phenomena, phenomenon or phenomena like suppletion uh, helps potentially cause us to question the idea of derivation in general. Well, are these things really stored as is is it stored as bad as my mind, and then some uh, some information is added and it derives worse, or are they start as stored as completely separate items? Just a question. This is a rhetorical question. Well, it is a real question in linguistics, but uh, Even we're not going to... linguistics, yeah, it's, the boundaries are very fuzzy. Yeah, we're not going to solve it on the podcast today. Uh, you know, it's that competing research programs are working on this exact thing, and both answers are being argued for. So stay tuned, I guess. Natural language, if you look at how language actually works, and yeah, it's fuzzy. I agree completely. 
So that's just food for thought for the language curious person. For the learner, you must memorize it. So uh, we want to talk about a, a phenomena which is pretty, I don't want to say completely rare because there's manifestations of it in Austronesian and such. But this is the idea of the phonosteam. And this is a story that Jedi would not tell you. So <laughs> uh, it is a unit between phoneme and morpheme, particularly active in English, right? So we might call it a sequence of phonemes that seems to add meaning to a word. But it's not quite its own suffix or prefix or something. So English examples include the beginning of the word with SN, as in snout sniff, snooze, sneeze. These all seem to have some related reading meaning. Uh, and what's, in this, what's that? What about snooze though? Does that have anything to do with the nose? Do you snooze through your nose? See, Tyler has spoiled it for you. All these seem to have to do with the nose. And I would argue snoozing like snoring. Mm -hmm, that's what I think of. Has to do with the nose, right? Um. Now, the other one, sleeping, does... Well, no, I don't know. Our next one, our next phonosteam is SL, and I didn't include sleeping in the list because I thought it's unrelated, but now I've just changed my mind. So our SL list is slide, slip, slope, and slant. You can see uh, there's a bit of a horizontal inclination to all of these, right? You so uh, that makes me wonder if sleeping does Maybe. have something to do with being horizontal. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? It's an eye of the beholder, I suppose. <laughs> I can see it. Ear of the behearer. <laughs> so, how, far, how far do we go with it? How about uh, the slipper, the shoe you wear in the house? Sure. Seems to me to have a lot to do with slip and slope and slide. You slip it on your feet. You slip into it. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, so uh, not all of them are going to fit in the box. I think when you go to the GL ones, it gets worse. So like <laughs> glide, Whoops. glisten, um, et cetera, seem to be related. Glitter. But maybe, yeah, glitter. Gleam. Gleam. Glue, though, seems to be wrong. Right? So, so yeah. this is an idea in English, and it's not actually totally contained to English. Uh uh, Robert Blust has written about the Austronesian root hypothesis, and he identifies three, like, kind of syllables, uh, CBC syllables that are related in a bunch of different words that seem to be adding some meaning. For example, he gives the example P-I-T, pit, as two things that are pressed together. So an example of the word is sumpit, the blow dart, because it's made from two hollowed out things sewn together. So... There's a, he has a bunch. So maybe this is going to be in a language you study or maybe not. And I'm not saying it's going to help you. You don't have to learn any of this to learn English, of course. But it does contribute meaning, right? So it yeah. deserves some kind of status. Yeah. Contributes yeah, to the vocabulary. It's worth knowing. And maybe it will give you a hint at a word if you, if you hear it beginning with SN and you don't know it. Like, um, I, I never read Harry Potter, so I don't know. But they have a word in, I saw a moot. I haven't even seen all the movies, but I saw one of the movies and I think they use a word like snoz or something for kissing. Is that right? Snog? Snog. Is that it? Nothing to I know snog means kiss. Snog is to, to make out. British slang term. The noses are touching. You get, mm -hmm. I mean, 
you only breathe in through the nose. I don't, I don't know. That's my <laughs> guess though, is that the author of the book had some insight into this or it's just coincidence. It's not anything to do with that series of books. It's generally used in Britain, Britain. Even better, even better. So I had never heard it all, but I had guesses about what it meant based on this kind of information. That's, that's my case for learning phonostemes and just super interesting. Mm -hmm. And surely you can think of more when you start uh, looking at English. And usually in English, it's two consonants at the beginning of a word. So um, our final kind of like fun morphological uh, part of our survey here is the, what's that, Tyler? Our final berry for the day. Our final berry for the day is the cran. <laughs> so um, the cranberry called the cran morph is um, cranberry is different from many berries like strawberry and blueberry in that if you take straw out, it's its own word. And if you take blue out, the words and not the actual berries, just for clarity. That's right. No, if you take the straw out of the strawberry, there is no straw, right? Only the words, not the actual fruits. This isn't uh, some sort of alchemy. So, uh, but if you take crayon on itself, uh, nowadays this example is becoming weaker. This is the classic example in linguistics and people will call it cranberry cran morph or cranberry morph but maybe now with the rise of cran apple cran grape etc it's becoming more acceptable to use cran on its own not as crayon but cran from the cranberry so this now is used to refer to whole category of morphemes which kind of can't stand on their own but we also don't really want to call them bound morphemes so I don't know. Cran never stands on its own. It does always occur with cran apple or cran grape or cranberry. So maybe it is a bound morpheme. And the original meaning of cran came from the bird, right? The crane. Yeah. Tyler says that it comes from the, crane and that makes sense. Not evident now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if you didn't know that as I didn't before Tyler told me and it was opaque to you, then it might seem that cran is just its own thing that doesn't occur with anything else um, or can't appear totally alone. I, I thought of an example in Roviana. So our qu next question is, uh, any others? What can you think of? So I think Tyler has a couple a bunch of other berries. Yeah, but some of the berries, so we looked at a lot of berries and uh, some of them, it seemed like maybe the word could stand on its own and some it couldn't or some it was a name. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of berries. So this is a good source of this. Um, Tyler, could you think of any other cranberry morphs? Let's go with the berry series first. Right. They're in the comments to this slide. Yeah. Just pull it up. So there's, you see it? yeah, I can read them if you like. We have, oh, you corrected me. It's not lingon berry. It's lingonberry. <laughs> lingonberry? Lingonberry. <laughs> Nothing to do with lingons. So boysenberry, loganberry, mulberry. Olali berry? Never never heard of it. Never heard of that one. Rasp berry. That one's a cupboard. Right? If you know what a rasp is, you'll know that uh you can guess maybe it's related to rasp berry. But nobody says rasp berry, they say raspberry. So that's a bit of a cupboard there as far as our categorization of opacity. 
Um, we have Bilberry, which I've never heard of, Farkleberry, new to me as well, and Huckleberry. Now, Farkle is the game like this, right? It is so, a game now. I don't know. Not known I, to me. Maybe Berry is a good source of cranberry morphs in general. Mm -hmm. Can you think of any non-berry related cran morphs? We had the, we were talking about Mitt and Sieve. Oh, th yeah, those, those awesome things Sieve. like uh, the Feck and Feckless, F-E-C-K. <laughs> yeah, that's a good uh, one. The Hap and Hapless, we already talked about in Happy. Uh, the Wreck and Reckless, there's no R-E-C-K, that doesn't occur as a word anymore. Oh, yeah, it's not related to Wreck, W-R-E-C-K. The meaning wouldn't related, even make sense at all. Related to Reckon, R-E-C-K-O-N. So if somebody was reckless with a W, they would actually be very careful. <laughs> I thought of one in Roviana. Uh, the word for morning is munu munu, pronounced in fast speech like moon munu. And munu by itself, I asked, and I couldn't seem to find any meaning for it by itself. Although when I tried to say munu by itself in a phrase like good morning, many people recovered the meaning moon munu. And I wasn't sure if it's just because it's acceptable to shorten it or if people are just being nice to a foreigner. So <laughs> you never know. Probably they're just being nice because I'm trying. If you weren't so good looking, you'd get worse <laughs> results. <laughs> <laughs> it's because of my glasses that I'm good looking. So, <laughs> all right. So we're going to move on to comparatively speaking and, uh, you know, blast. Speaking of Roviana. Yes, we're going to. That's why I brought it up. Our. We're finally bringing up our first comparatively speaking lesson from Roviana. And we're going to blast you with a few different uh, morphological processes uh, before we wrap up morphology. So Roviana, in case you don't know, as many of you may not, is an Austronesian language of Solomon Islands, spoken by approximately five to 10,000 people as a native language. So all Austronesian languages descend from a common ancestor called, that we call, Proto-Austronesian. It was spoken approximately 5,000 years ago in Taiwan. Now, Proto-Austronesian had an infix called in, and they, it was an infix, and uh, <laughs> they, used, they used it to mark the perfective, um, but long story short, it was reanalyzed as a nominal marker in Roviana uh, and other many other oceanic languages, which is a subfamily within Austronesian, which, Oce of course, Roviana belongs to the oceanic group. So the nominalizing infix in in Roviana can be used in certain verbs to nominalize, to turn a verb into a noun. Now, my understanding is that this is not 100% productive. It happens in a lot of verbs. But what I have learned is that there are verbs which you can do it to and people understand you, but they know that's not right. Kind of like a lot of the morphology we've discussed in English, right? I've given you some examples here. Uh, the first word is ghani, which means to eat. My understanding is this is a bit of a crude word and most people use henna for eat now. But the word for food is yinani with the infix in inserted directly after the first sound. The first right. sound 
is written as a G in orthography, but we have it represented here with a voiced velar fricative, the gamma, because that is what it is phonetically, right? not the way it is in writing. The in is inserted directly after the first consonant of the word. The next example is mana, to bless, right? So a blessing is a minana. You may recognize this. It's related to the Hawaiian word mana, which my understanding is the origin of the English use of mana in many fantasy games and stuff for their source of magic. So small world. Um, if just as a note, what happens when there's no consonant at the beginning of the word? For example, the word ene, to walk or journey, if you were to make this into a noun, it would be inene. It just acts like a prefix then in those cases. And if you're watching the video, you can see at the bottom right, that is a Roviana Tomoko from Rarumana. Uh, if you're a Roviana person, you already know about that boat. All right, our next uh, look at morphological processes is we are revisiting the English plural. Now I have written it here as the plural suffix with a hyphen S. But uh, if you were a phonologist, there's actually a way to propose that any of the uh, suffixes that it manifests as is the underlying form and the other two are derived from it. So I am just kind of arbitrarily picking the S Maybe one day we'll all each propose a solution and argue why it's the best solution. For now, I'll just describe it again. The suffix changes phonetic form depending on the sound it attaches to. In English, we have a class of sounds called sibilants. Now, sibilants in English means the sounds S, Z, Sh, Z, Ch, and J, right? Uh, I say that these sounds are sibilants because it seems to me that this grouping of sounds is called sibilants specifically because of this rule in English. So it, the, rather than describing what a sibilant is in features, I would just tell you it is these sounds. So the reason um, that you get the reasoning, you would get the different S, Z, and schwa Z endings is it depends on what the suffix attaches to. We will call this in linguistics environmental conditioning, right? What environment it is. So if the plural is attaching to a final sound, which is a voiceless non-sibilant, right? Remember voicing happens here. You can test it, right? So if it attaches to a voiceless non-sibilant, such as T in the word cats, then it manifests as S. If the plural attaches to a voiced non-sibilant, you will get the Z, as in the G it attaches to in dog. Dogs. However, if the final sound is a sibilant, regardless of voicing, you get schwa Z. So you will find this in words like churches, judges, wishes, garages, <laughs> etc. So one question you might have is, does one of the surface forms correspond to the form in the mind? And if so, 
So this is a lot of 10 cents words to say, is it one of these three things deep down and we derive the other two from it? There's a million solutions for this. Um, I have solved it with as a puzzle for fun with each answer. And I felt like the Z was the best answer for the sake of elegance. Under my solutions, it required the least amount of stipulations. However, I believe there's a solution with schwa Z that is equally elegant. So what is interesting here from my perspective is that if you are interested in rules-based approaches, mm -hmm. um, the S that we write it with is the least likely underlying form according to Occam's razor. But that's the one we write. So that's the one you assume in the mind. And that's if you are a reader, if you're reading a lot of English, and you learned it that way, you're going to think the S is the underlying form. And that's why I went ahead and put it at the top. I think under constraint-based approach, maybe Z is still the best. But again, you could, you could handle all of it with just constraint rankings, and they're all somewhat comparably uh, stipulative. So this is really a question for you. Does one of the surface forms correspond to one of the forms in the mind? Or is it just an empty thing that says plural and it can be these three things? Who knows? Tyler and Lisa, do you guys uh, have like um, a pick whether S, Z, or Schwa Z you think is probably the underlying form? I like Z, but you're right. I don't know. For the learner, I think S is very useful. Yeah. I agree. So, too, very salient. But the thing that. Exactly. I use against S is that how on earth would it voice? When right. Yeah. From a linguistic yeah. perspective. Yeah. yeah. Really opening up the black box, but great question to think about. I like Z because it's, yeah, it's an elegant mm -hmm. sort of compromise. Yeah. I think it's, I think that a lot of linguists are going to go with Z once they solve, and this is like uh, an extremely common puzzle on like introduction to phonology, midterm mm -hmm. or final for undergraduates. So if you are taking that test now and listening to this podcast, I hope we helped. Here you go. <laughs> it just made it harder. <laughs> okay, so our next one, Tyler is going to teach us a little bit about allomorphy in Japanese verbs. All right. If you'll, um... Thank you. Okay, so the important division in Japanese verbs is whether your verb stem ends in a vowel or a consonant. And there's only two vowels that a verb can end in. It can end in E or E. Can you uh, quickly explain the verb stem? Have we mentioned that? We're gonna see, we're looking at it right here. So after, in these examples, the thing that ends with a hyphen, that's the stem. So to drink is gonna be nomu. That's the dictionary form, the plain affirmative. And the negative over here on the right, nomanai. So what these two forms have in common is those first three sounds, nom. Nom can't be a word on its own. It's got to have at least one suffix following it. While the verb for eat, taberu, the negative is tabenai. And so the forms are the same up through that fourth sound, which is the vowel e, taberu, tabenai. The shape on the, of the suffix that we're attaching depends on the stem final. So this u is really, in some sense, in the brain, it's got to be the same thing as this ru below it. 
and anai and nai, they're just variants of the same suffix. So uh, Lisa had mentioned a second ago about stems, and we've been using the term stems and roots a lot in this podcast. And we're not going to distinguish it too much here now, but just in case the listener is lost, the stem is the thing which other things are added to. So in the case right. of these Japanese verb stems, gnome is the stem, and either the uh, regular, whatever is added to it is not the stem. Sorry, that was terrible. <laughs> in simple case like Just dogs, the... mm-hmm. we, we do have a single word dog, but in the plural form, Dog is no longer a word. It's just a word part that would, to which the suffix attaches. So dog would be the stem in that case. Excellent. Thank you. Oh, uh, you're getting a little quiet there again, Peter. For the past tense, which Japanese also has, the basic marker is ta, but we'll see a variant of that too. So eight, past tense of eat, tabeta. And over here again, the negative, tabenakatta. You can analyze this nakata as one suffix or two. Either way, just note that it also ends in ta because it's showing past tense. Tabeta, tabenakata. Note the long consonant here too, double T in the Roman spelling. Okay, and then we have drank, I think is, oh no, we have did, another one. Here, yeah, we won't talk about suru. It's what's called an irregular verb. Shita means I did. Shinakata, did not do. Right, so these forms, they share the same shape of the suffix ta in both cases, ta beta sta. But when it's that drink stem, for example, the stem ending in a consonant, in this case, the consonant M, Japanese is very picky about what sequences of, it is, of sounds it allows inside of a word. There can't be a sequence of an M to a T that is barred, we say, it's not permitted. So over here at the bottom right, I've written what we would think of as the underlying form, the two pieces that are put together, the root num and the suffix ta. The way it comes out is here to the left of that nonda. So we have some changes taking place, nonda. And I think there's one more line, right. The verb of play, asobu, ends in a b. When we add a ta suffix to that, we get asonda. So again, the allomorphs are up here. U and ru are different shapes of the same thing, just like our S and Z and schwa Z for English. Nai and anai, those are variants, allomorphs of the same thing. And ta up here and da here. That's a, an example of allomorphy in Japanese. So Tyler, the um, to ask a few follow-up questions, the... Uh, Stem in a word like drink, nom, people will often hear it as nomu, but the u is added to the end, right? And the stem is nom. The same with asobu. Really, the b is the end, right? And so that's the part that changes, right? That final, yeah, where the contact takes place is where we see the change happen in this example. This is really cool. I have to say, I wish uh, that this had been available to me when I studied Japanese in undergraduate because I never noticed any of these patterns. You just memorize the forms? I tried to. I often Mm. made mistakes. I just Mm -hmm. tried to individually memorize it. And I really did do a lot of generalizations. 
but probably I did the the taberu generalization more often than not. So I might have said no munai, and then maybe because of luck of English, I said no munai because I just reduced the u, right? Because of luck of English. But I can see with asobu, I never, when I was studying Japanese, would have proposed that it was a a consonant final word. And this uh uh. I guess not trying to plug Lango too much, but this is the kind of learning that you can get here that is linguistically informed, mm -hmm. which I believe makes, makes it much easier to learn. You will learn much faster if you're aware of this kind of division from the beginning. Absolutely. It's really informative, Tyler. Thank you. So now for a little fun. If this wasn't fun enough for you, we're going to make it a little funner. <laughs> <laughs> see i made it productive which we said we were supposed to be more fun all right so f the ineffable the first we wanted to talk first thing we wanted to talk about here was widow words aka lost positives so you notice in english we have words like nonchalant but people don't say chalant we have words like incognito but people don't say cognito <laughs> My favorite example that Tyler came up with was disgruntled and gruntled. I'm feeling very gruntled this morning. What? <laughs> what <is this> to <laughs> we wanted to read a small excerpt from How I Met My Wife uh, by Jack Winter, published in The New Yorker in 1994. And it's supposedly a monologue from a man at a party telling how he met his wife. And his speech is full of this. Did you want to say something, add something right quick? This is so great. We need to, I'll, we need to link this in the video too. We definitely, uh, we'll link it in the YouTube for sure in the com in the description. Okay. And we'll plug it on Instagram soon too. So I'll read just a couple sentences. It had been a rough day. So when I, so when I walked into the party, I was very chalant. Despite my efforts to appear gruntled and consulate, I was furling my wieldy, umbrella for the coat check when I saw her standing alone in a corner. She was a descript person. <laughs> <laughs> a woman in a state of total array. <laughs> her hair was kempt, her clothing sheveled, <laughs> and she moved in a gamely way. Sheveled really just gets me. That's I so like kempt. <laughs> we always say disheveled. Somehow when you say these to me, it still sounds bad if you say her her hair was in a state of total array. It doesn't sound good, even though it's the opposite should be. Uh -huh. right. It's still associated with that negative meaning. So this so if is... If you're a learner of English, the takeaway is that these positive forms, these affirmative ones, they don't exist. They're not used. That's you right. Have, yeah. Like the, the examples on the screen. The ones on the left, they're used all the time. The ones on the right, you'd expect them logically, but there's but a the, gap there. The pair doesn't exist. Yeah, they're not paired. So for native speakers, when they read um, some prose like that of the story in How I Met My Wife, um, it's very it's very entertaining because you discover you hadn't even thought that there wasn't a positive form of this word, right? So our challenge to you, dear listener, is to tell us some of your favorite lost positives. You can go and find the article and steal the ones used there. That's fine. You might be able to think of some that that person, that author had not thought of and that we haven't even thought of either. Tell us your best ones and we will shout you out. So how can they reach us? Especially if they are effable. 
Yeah, good point on that one. Um, how can they reach us? They can get at Peter at Lango Institute. Um, you can get at us on Twitter at Lango Institute across social media platforms. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Come find Lango Institute and uh, let us know what you think. Delantly. Does this slide have your email address on it? Can you put it up? Uh, the last the last slide has it. Last uh, two slide. slides from now. Let me see if I okay. can. All right. So we're going to do a little bit of wordplay. Um, yes. Are we going to have time for Frigate Bird today? Um, we can do a very quick one. How about that? So I think today we'll introduce to the listener this game that Tyler taught me uh, and Lisa. And I already love it. This is my kind of game. It's it's once you if you are a true Lango file, once you play this, you can never go back. You will love it. So uh, go back to not playing it. The, <laughs> the game is played uh, with Scrabble tiles, and what you do is uh, the person usually someone will kind of deal out tiles, and if the dealer. If you it's can a be very playing, you can be a player or not, but for now I'm not going to play because I'm not going to be able to see the screen. Although Tyler is a very fair dealer, I will tell yes. you he won't just snatch words. Agreed. He'll probably beat you. So the dealer puts some tiles out, and as you notice a word, it has to be four letters minimum. You call it out, and he's already put out there. There's uh, that's not a word that I know. So there's four letters out right now. There is K L R Lark. Lark is good. Yeah, we try to avoid uh, personal nouns. Of course, you can make up your own. You can make Carl. and adjust as you like. But Lark, a nice standard noun, kind of bird. So that's going to go in Lisa's pile, and I'll ask you to put that up on the screen when he is in the Lisa stack. So it's put together as a word, but it's still in play. We can make words either from the draw pile that I'm putting out, or you can snatch the whole word and rearrange all of its tiles to make a new word. That's right, but the new word can't be, it, it can't be um, what we might say, a derivation of the same word. So <laughs> you can't use larks, for example, or dislark. <laughs> no dislarking about dislarks. <laughs> I, I know it's not a word, but for example, you couldn't use that word. Which is the beauty of this game, right? It really helps you think about um, these morphological processes that go on. Yeah. Look for morphemes and avoid ones that are shared. Be a morpheme addict. Oh, with. Nice. with. You have one, Peter? With. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to add that in Peter's pile here. Oh, these are going to be hard to change. Oh, no, with, with. for example, could be changed to wither. Mm -hmm. Right. That would be an example of an acceptable change. With. Ooh, I stole yours. Whip. So you just fricated your first word. We're going to take all these tiles. Perfect. Inserting the D looks like an infix, but it's not. It behaves that way. So with the resulting word is unrelated to the word with. Therefore, it is permitted by the game. Right. Whip. And I just stole, so I'm going to erase this, which right. uh, harks back to the, the whole name of the game because the frigate bird is a bird that steals food from other birds. I was glad you were able to steal one. I was worried that uh, we <laughs> wouldn't have any stealing in this tiny micro round. Mm -hmm. But yes, this is part of the fun of the game. If you're like me and you're just a pure language lover, when someone steals your word, you'll even chuckle. It'll be so entertaining. 
So uh, usually in this game, there's only winners. Although if you play with Tyler and he keeps scores, Tyler will always win. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm going to challenge that. I might. Oh, that's a good one, Tyler. Bible. Yes. Please add it to my section of the screen. So So the letters for Bible and Tyler has added Bible. Um, so yeah, so Bibles is an illegal move, right? Yeah, Bibles would be illegal. Biblets? Is that a word? <laughs> I, think of what, I can't think of how you're going to steal it, nor Lark. I can't think of how to steal it, but... I would always just have a, a pocket dictionary handy when we played, but if you guys want to look on Wiktionary or something, if Biblet, like a little bib, if biblet? that's out there. Hmm. Is that so, what you said? Yeah, Biblet. I'll Google it right quick. Thank you. Um, Otherwise, you can do uh, dots or something. No, Biblet's a word. Nice. Also, Dobble? No. No, I think Biblet's nah. a name. Biblet. Right. All right. Let's go with Biblet. And that was yours, Lisa? You called it? Yep. And I'm going to take, can I take the S too? Yeah, let's say Biblet's a word. Biblet's. Yeah, take it. Well, it seems, seems like a word of an S, but okay. Well, so if we were to finish the game, uh, the scoring, if you wanted to keep score, it matters how many letters in addition to four you have. So biblets might be a slightly better word than biblet. Although if you love making new words, it might make it a little harder. Um, hmm. I can't. Dove. Nice. Not visible. Uh, Dove. Dove. Nice. So, or dove. Mm-hmm. Good point. <laughs> but it's they're unrelated, so you could just steal it saying that. Can you do that? Oh, can you do that? You have to change the spelling, right? You can't just it mention another meaning. We have to consult the frigate bait bird uh, rule book. Is a word. Oh, nice. So now, Tyler, in case you were listening and you can't see what we're doing, if you're only listening to the audio file or just uh, not watching it for whatever reason, then to summarize, Lisa has lark, width, and biblets. I have dove. And Tyler has the word ague. Ague. Which we all know what it means, including me. (laughs) But if we didn't know what it meant... (laughs) I don't know what it means, Tyler. Tell me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. It's a sickness, right? It's a crossword ease term. I forgot Lisa's a crossword champion. I was like, you're really good at frigate. <laughs> <laughs> if you're good at anagram, too, you kill it in this game. It's a delightful game. Mm-hmm. We need to play this on IG Live soon, Peter. Look, look for it. We'll be doing this soon. Calling all wordplay enthusiasts. Uh, I need an L. Isn't that, is Apex? That's a. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the peak of something. Nice. Apex. I'm just looking for uh, frigates. So, (laughs) excuse me. I'm just looking at. That's the higher level playing. Like a true frigate bird. You're already a master. I'm still white belt one stripe. I'm still just trying to get the four. Argue. Nice. Okay. All right. You got a frigate too. I'm playing, are you? Wait, you took you it from your own word. Yes. Yeah. You stole it from yourself, argue. 
Okay, we're we're down. I've got four more tiles to put out. Oh, that. we're almost done. Okay. All yeah. right. We still have plenty more tiles, and the reason these don't have numbers on them is because they're actually bananagram tiles, not Scrabble. We could keep going if you guys want, but we we said we just play a short game. Okay. Yeah. So we, keep, I, we can we can cut it short. We can cut it short. We'll play a full game full game on IG Live in the future. If people like it, like it, we might do it a couple times. We could do it for a combo hour. This would be great for a combo hour too. Big challenge, Clark. do it in your second language. Ooh, yeah, one. yeah, absolutely. Clark would be there. What's a Clark? That's an old, it's a variant of clerk. Eh? And here's the last tile, it's another A. We've got three A's up for grabs there. It's a lot. So, Cage is the only thing I can think of, but I keep looking at these four-letter words. Cage. So it looks like we're wrapping up our frigate game. Clearly, Lisa is in the lead. Uh, Tyler has a more than four-letter word, and I have three four-letter words. So if the game were to go on for several turns, many things could change. Mm -hmm. uh, Tyler could, or I, or Lisa could steal everyone's words and wind up with them all. It's an extremely fun game. Uh, particularly Exciting. if people are nice. Yeah. <laughs> know your family. Know, you know, know what you're getting into. But <laughs> I think for many people, this will be fun and delightful. Yes, I'm delighted. Thank you for introducing me to this game too, Tyler. Yeah, he taught yeah. me too. I'm very thankful. And it's quite literally wordplay because we're playing with Indeed. words. All right. Speaking of wordplay, uh, a quick mention about our new book uh, in the Korean Lingo Korean series called Korean Pun Insula. We just did a IG live on it. So please check that out on our Instagram page where we share a couple puns from each section of the book. And we go over uh, puns related to verbs, nouns, high frequency words, um, Hangul letters, and also ones that come from Sino-Korean words. So please check that out. All right, and we're going to end with some wordplay in English inspired by um, some new words that have come into the language during um, this pandemic. And there's a bunch of great jokes around this too. Oh, have we shared <laughs> so many coronavirus jokes out there? It's a pandemic. All right, and here's our great new word for a phenomena that I think deserves more, more attention yes. is the pandemic. Pandemic's my favorite. Mine too. Hat tip to Katie Crowder. Katie uh, has an amazing blog um, called Women Wear the Pants in which she talks about also the different kinds of uh, pants that have arisen in the pandemic. And it's interesting because as soon as you start hearing about the new pants terms, you will know, especially if like me, for example, you've been doing a lot of work from home. There are pants you will, for example, wear just when you're on Zoom, pants you might wear if you think you're gonna see somebody, etc. It is interesting. Absolutely. Okay, and then I have some jokes, coronavirus inspired jokes for you. All right, so what's left? in the grocery stores in France after the tornadoes hit them. Debris. Debris. <laughs> the duh gave, gave me the hint. 
<laughs> okay. And similarly, what do you call panic buying of sausage and cheese in Germany? Sausage and cheese. Mm, I feel like the first word is worst. Yep. Worst case scenario. Very nice. <laughs> is case German for cheese? Is. All right. Portuguese casual. Yeah, I could see Cheese that. always funny as we <laughs> we've discussed. We need more cheese. Cheese all that. <laughs> all right. Lots more wordplay on IDTV live coming soon. Uh, we have a we have one up to talking about new words coming into English during the Corona apocalypse. Please check that one out. I also just saw a new one yesterday, which I love, which is the Corona coaster. Referring to the up and down in emotions you have, right? From it's one rhythmically day. like roller coaster. Perfect. Indeed. All right, please check that out. And with a couple announcements, LangoPod is now on YouTube and iTunes. Whoop, whoop. Uh, please go there, check us out and read more about our podcast topics on our blog. We have one that just went out, a great one about syllables that Peter wrote uh, with examples from English and Portuguese. Also, our spring one session is coming up. Starts January 11th through March 14th and registration is already open for our programs. We've got on-site, online and blended classes and lots of things going on online uh, right now and continue into next year, conversation hours and live sessions on Instagram as well as linguistics for language learning workshops. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, get at us. Uh, Peter's email address is here. You can also add us or DM us on social. And that's it for the Lango Pod today. Um, uh, I tried to think of a morphine pun at the last second. It's not <laughs> coming. So you know, we will see you next time. Ciao. Annyeonghaseyo. Annyeonghaseyo.